Hey, I'm Michael, online pastor at Silverdale Baptist Church, and I'm excited to welcome you to our podcast. Now, after you listen to this episode, I hope you'll stick around for just a moment. I'll be sharing about some resources we have for you, as well as a few things going on at Silverdale right now that we would love for you to be a part of. Now, I really hope this podcast is just what you need today to help you in your relationship with Jesus. Good morning. Welcome to Silverdale Baptist Church. It is so good to see all of you here worshiping with us today. I'd like to welcome our Creekside service, um, all of you at our Bonnie Oaks campus, North Utawa campus, St. Elmo campus, and all of you worshiping online. I'm Tony Wallace, sir. I'm one of the pastors here at Silverdale, and I have the privilege each week to share with you God's Word. So this is what I encourage you to do. Go and take your Bibles and open up to Mark chapter 15, or you got a smartphone, open that Bible app to Mark 15. We also have these Bible study outlines that we provide for you, and you can take them out, follow along, and take notes as we study God's Word today. You see, today I have the privilege of sharing with you the greatest story that's ever been told. It is the passion of Jesus Christ. In fact, in the passion of Jesus Christ, we find that in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they write more about this event the arrest, the trial, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ than any other event in Jesus' life. In fact, the reality is is that the Apostle Paul and all the letters that he wrote in his epistles, he never once mentions one of Jesus' parables or one of Jesus' miracles, and yet in every letter he talks about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The passion of Christ is the central event in human history. All of the Old Testament points to it. All the New Testament points back to it. This is what we're going to talk about. It is the greatest story ever told. But what we're going to do today is just ask the question, why? Why would Jesus do this? Why the cross? Why? I mean, typically, whenever you see somebody doing something really difficult in their life, there's that question that you go, why would you do that, right? I mean, I see people that, you know, they, they climb Mount Everest, and I go, why, right? I mean, really? You're going to risk life and limb? You're, you're going to endure that kind of freezing temperature? You're going to plan for that months on end, cost you thousands of dollars? Why would you do that, right? Or maybe people go, okay, you know what? I want to be a doctor. And then they discover, oh, it's going to take us four years of undergraduate and four years of medical school. And then, okay, you know, three to five years of, you know, residency. And I may have about $200,000 of student loans afterwards. I go, why? And they go, well, no, it's, it's worth it, right? Or think about athletes, you know, certain athletes, you know what, they, they work hard in-season workouts. They're in the weight room working out for hours on end. You, you see them in sub-zero temperatures running and exercising. You go, why, right? Well, I believe that in every one of those circumstances, there's some payoff. There's some reward. There, there's some fulfillment. There's some accomplishment that comes with that event, right? But with the cross of Jesus Christ, you look at it and go, I don't see it. I mean, Jesus himself, he's going, you know what? I don't want to do this. Do you remember whenever Jesus was in the garden, he was praying that God would allow this cup to pass? God, if there's any other way, right? Look at it. It's found in Mark chapter 14, verse 36. Jesus says this, and he said, Abba, Father, 
All things are possible with you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. You see, this wasn't going to be something that Jesus endure, you know, enjoyed. It wasn't going to be fulfilling, right? It's going to be some, you know, oh, it's going to be really enjoyable. No, I mean, it doesn't matter what you do and what, what shows you may watch about the passion of Jesus Christ. The cruelty in what Jesus Christ endured, we cannot even comprehend. It was the worst thing that ever happened to anyone in human history. Jesus endured it. Now, the passion of Jesus Christ actually starts in Mark chapter 14. Okay? It starts there in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is praying, Father, allow this cup to pass from me. And the Bible says he's in such agony and trauma that he's literally sweating drops of blood. That's how much agony he's in. But then he's betrayed by one of his closest friends, Judas Iscariot, with a kiss. And then he's arrested. Arrested by who? The Romans? No. He's arrested by temple guards. He's arrested by a church committee. Remember this. This isn't some, you know, government, you know, action. This is a religious action. These are religious leaders. They're arresting him because they're jealous of Jesus. Jesus is popular and they are not. And then they bring Jesus to the high priest home. It's against the law to hold a trial, according to Jewish law, at nighttime. They didn't care. They're going to hold this trial, and then they bring in all these false witnesses, and the Bible says that they can't even agree on their testimony against Jesus. And in total absolute frustration, the high priest puts Jesus under the oath and makes him tell the truth. He says, here's what I want to know, Jesus, and here's the question. Look at it, Mark chapter 14, verse 61. He says, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, why do we still need witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What is your decision? They all condemned him as deserving death. And suddenly these religious people go unhinged. They're obviously demonically possessed. They begin to start slapping Jesus, spitting on Jesus, plucking his beard. They blindfold Jesus and slap him and say, oh, you're supposed to be a prophet. Prophesy, who is slapping you? Now why? Jesus just declared himself to be the son of God. Why would he endure this humiliation? I mean, Jesus told Peter that he could call for 10,000 angels to rescue him at any moment, and yet he does not. Why? Well, the religious leaders, they condemn Jesus to death, but they don't have the authority to crucify him. They need the Romans to do that. And so they then bring Jesus to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. And that's where Mark chapter 15 begins. Let's look at it together. Mark 15, verse 1. As soon as it was morning, the chief priests, along with the elders, the experts in the law, and the whole Sanhedrin reached a decision. They bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Pilate said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered him, It is as you say. The chief priest accused him of many things. Pilate questioned him again, Are you not going to answer anything? See how many charges they are bringing against you? But Jesus did not answer anything, so Pilate was amazed. At each festival, Pilate used to release to the people one prisoner whom they requested. There was one named Barabbas who was imprisoned with the rebels and had committed murder in the rebellion. The crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Pilate replied, do you want me to release the king of the Jews to you? 
In fact, he knew that it was because of envy that the chief priest had handed him over. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release Barabbas to them instead. Again, Pilate replied to them, Then what do you want me to do with the man you call the king of the Jews? Crucify him, they shouted back. But Pilate said to them, Why? What has he done wrong? But they shouted even louder, Crucify him! Since he wanted to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. Now I want you to think just for a moment that here they were, they asked for a murderer and they condemned Jesus, the innocent one, to death. And Jesus Christ took Barabbas' place. You see that third cross that was supposed to be for Barabbas. Jesus took Barabbas' place and he took your place as well on the cross. Look at the next verse, Mark 15, 15. After he had Jesus flogged, he handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led him away inside the palace, which is the Praetorium, and called together the whole cohort of soldiers, that's 600 men. They put a purple robe on him, twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on him. The soldiers began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! They kept hitting him on the head with a reed and spitting on him. They also knelt down to pay homage to him. When they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put on his own clothing on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country. They forced him to carry Jesus' cross. That just simply means that Jesus was too weak to carry his own cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of a skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh that was to deaden the pain but he did not take it. They crucified him, and they divided his garments, casting lots for them to decide what each of them would take. Now it was the third hour, that's nine in the morning, when they crucified him. The superscription stating the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. They also crucified two criminals with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who were passing by ridiculed him, shaking their heads and saying, Ha! You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. Come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests, along with the experts in the law, mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also insulted him. When it was the sixth hour, that's noon, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, that's three in the afternoon. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama shabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a stick, and gave it to him to drink. They said, leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. Jesus cried out with a loud voice. We know those words are, it is finished. 
and then he breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion, who stood facing him, saw how he cried out and breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Now, as we've just looked at an entire chapter of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, and you see just a glimpse of what he endured, the question then comes to our mind, why? Why would Jesus, the Son of God, why would he endure this? What was the purpose? Well, as I've meditated on Mark 15 and other scriptures, there's three things that come to my mind, and I want you to jot them down on your outlines today. The very first thing is this, to show us the ugliness of sin, that Jesus did this to show us the ugliness of sin. You see, everything that surrounded the cross that day, the crucifixion and the rest of Jesus Christ, it illustrates the evil and sinfulness of humanity. Think of it. He was betrayed by a closest friend. He was arrested by religious people who were jealous of Jesus' popularity. You you have the, the, the Roman government. They knew Jesus was innocent, and yet they still condemned him to be crucified. You have the crowd. They they cry for a murderer and they condemn Jesus Christ, the innocent one. I mean, even the ruthlessness of the Roman soldiers. I mean, it is just, it's an illustration of evil. And here's Christ on the cross, dying on the cross, right? And and that's not enough. The people begin to mock him. I mean, okay, we've crushed his body, let's crush his spirit. Do you see, you look at that and go, Who are these people? How wicked can people be? And it's really easy for us to look back on them and judge them. But the fact is, you were there. The Bible says it was your sin that put Jesus Christ on the cross. It is your betrayal. It is your accusation. It is your blasphemy. It is your rebellion. It is your viciousness. It is is your, your hatred of God. All of that is found in Jesus Christ. In fact, look at how the Bible describes that moment. It's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Look what the Bible says. God made him, that's Jesus, who did not know sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. What does that mean? That means that Jesus Christ took all of our sin. Jesus took all the sin of all of humanity, of all time past, the past, the present, the future. He took all of the wickedness, all of sin, and it was placed on him. But what's interesting here is the Apostle Paul said, no, he didn't just bear our sin. No, he became our sin. You go, what does that mean? That means the one who never lied became a liar. The person who never lusted became pornography. The person who never hurt anyone became the rapist and the murderer. The innocent son of God became Hitler and Stalin and Osama bin Laden all at the same time. All the stench and filth and evil of every wicked heart and every one of our hearts was blazed on Jesus. He became that sin. He became our evil. But not only that, he bore all the consequences of sin, death and cancer and disease. He bore it all. Any suffering you've ever endured, Jesus endured it on the cross. That's what the Bible says happened. That's why Jesus Christ cried from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because God the Father who is holy cannot look at now his son who is sin. And Jesus Christ by himself carries all of the sin of all of mankind. He becomes sin in our place. That's why. 
He is illustrating for us the wickedness and what it cost our sin. And so let me ask you a simple question. If sin is that wicked and it costs that much, why do we tolerate it? Why do we toy with it? Why do we hide it in the closet? Why do we run to it? Why? Uh, let me think, uh, think of it like this. I don't know about you, I don't like snakes, okay? I just don't like snakes. I mean, spiders don't bother me, snakes, I just don't like snakes. And um, I know that not all snakes are venomous, and I know they serve a purpose before God, okay? All right? I get that. And people say, well, Pastor Tony, if you look at a snake in the eye, and if he has a round pupil, he's a good snake, but if he has a slitted eye, you know, that's a venomous snake. I'm like, I'm not going to get that close to a snake to look him in the eye, okay, right? And so, you know what? I don't like snakes, so what does that mean? That means I'm not going to have them in my house. I'm not going to let them stay in my closet. I'm not going to let them sleep in my shoes. But let me remind you of something, that sin is more dangerous than any snake you'd ever come across. It will destroy you. In fact, look at this quote. Sin will take you farther than you want to go. It'll keep you longer than you want to stay, and it'll cost you more than you want to pay. Let me say that again. Sin will take you farther than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay. It will cost you more than you want to pay. It always leads to death. Whenever we sin, it always leads to some kind of death in our life, spiritually, emotionally. Something happens. But that's not what God planned. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who did not know sin to become sin for us. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God wants you to now have his righteousness, and you can live free of sin. That's why Jesus Christ endured the cross. But there's a second reason why Jesus endured the cross. Jot this down. Number two is this, to demonstrate the incredible love of God for you. To demonstrate God's incredible love for you. You need to know something. God loves you, and to demonstrate it, he went to the cross. That's why he sent his son Jesus. We know this verse, John 3, 16, look at it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Jesus went to the cross. Why? Because he loves you. I mean, whenever Jesus Christ died on the cross, he said what? It is finished. What does that mean? Paid in full. Jesus paid the sin debt in your place. The wrath of God that belonged on you, guess what? It fell on Jesus Christ, and God was completely satisfied. And so what does that mean? That means that you now can experience the love of God because Jesus Christ took all the wrath of God in your place. Listen to me, the, the crucifixion of Jesus is the central event in human history. All of the Old Testament foreshadows it. Every, you know, Passover was this past weekend. Every year of Passover and a sacrifice of a Passover lamb pointed to Jesus Christ. That's why the prophet, John the Baptist, said this. He points to Jesus and says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus became our sin debt for us, the sacrificial lamb. And so think of it. Jesus satisfied the, the justice of God so now that he can demonstrate the love of God. Do, do you understand? Nobody loves you more than Jesus. Nobody. Look at what he did for you. Nobody loves you like that. You can trust him with your life. Jesus put it like this in John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. 
One of the greatest motivations Jesus had was love. Why, when they were falsely accusing him, why didn't he lash back out? Because of love. Why did he stay on the cross? Because of his love for you. Listen, nails didn't keep Jesus on the cross. His love for you kept him on the cross. Romans chapter five, verse eight says this, but God demonstrated his own love toward us in in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What does that mean? While you were at your worst, Jesus was dying for you. Nobody loves you more than Jesus Christ. You can trust him with your life. I've shared this story before of the tragedy of Northwest Airlines Flight 225. Took off in Detroit, crashed a few minutes later. Um, 115 people lost their lives. There was one survivor, this girl, Cecilia, four-year-old girl. And, And they were confused. How did this one girl live when everybody else tragically died? Well, as Cecilia tells the story, She said that when the plane started the crash, her mother, Paula, unbuckled her seatbelt, went over to Cecilia's seat and wrapped her arms around Cecilia and hung on. And as the plane was crashing, she hung on. And whenever it hit the ground, she tried to hang on. And whenever the fireball ensued, she kept trying to hang on. She died, but she saved her daughter, Cecilia. That is an incredible sacrificial love of a mom, right? Can I tell you something? That's God's love for you. Jesus Christ unbuckled the belt from his seat in heaven and came down to do what? To die on the cross for you. That on the cross, he was literally wrapping his body and arms around you. And he said, I'm not going to let you go no matter what happens. I'm going to take the punishment in your place because I love you, I love you, I love you. And that's why the Bible says that nothing now can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Why? Why the cross? It shows us the ugliness of our sin. It shows us the love that God has for us. But there's a third reason for the cross. Jot this down. Number three, to open access into God's presence. To open wide the access into the very presence of Almighty God. Notice how Mark describes this in Mark 15, 37. Jesus cried out with a loud voice. We know what those words were. It is finished and breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. And you go, what, what is that all about? Well, if you're familiar with a Jewish temple... You had the holy place, that's where the high priest would do his work, and you had the holy of holies, that's where the Ark of the Covenant was. And you could only go into the holy of holies once a year after you'd made atonement for the sins of all the people. Only the high priest could do that. And so there you have this separation, but now after the crucifixion of Jesus, what does God do? God literally rips the the curtain in the temple in two from top to bottom. Why? Because God was saying no more. All those things that have separated you from me, they are all been removed away. You can now come boldly in a new relationship through Jesus Christ. Notice how the writer of Hebrews puts this. Hebrews 10, 19. We have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus. He's inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain. That is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Do you see what that's saying? Come on in. 
God says, come on into my presence. That's what God is saying now. Adam and Eve, after they sinned, God kicked them out of the presence of God. From that point forward, the Jewish nation had all these rituals and sacrifices that they had to do to try to bring them back to God. And now Jesus Christ says, it has all been fulfilled. It has all been satisfied. You can now come boldly into the throne of God's very presence. Now, why is this so important? Because it's in the presence of God that you receive everything that you really need. In fact, at the very bottom of your outline, I'll put this little box there of four things that you receive whenever you come into the presence of God. So what do you receive whenever you come into the presence of God? Four things, real quickly. Number one, you receive joy. (laughs) Psalm 1611 says, in your presence is abundant joy. At your right hand are eternal pleasures. You're looking for joy, happiness, meaning in life. It is found in the presence of God. What else do you find? You receive help. Look at it, Hebrews 4, 16. Let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in a time of need. Do you need help from God? It happens only whenever you come to him in prayer in the presence of God. What else do you need? You need to be refreshed, Acts three nineteen. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that the times of refreshing may come from where? The presence of the Lord. You need a Sabbath rest. You need the shalom and peace of God. It happens in the presence of God. Now, can I tell you something? It only happens through Jesus Christ. A lot of people, they try to come to God in their own terms, in their own way. You know what? Jesus said, Father, if there's any way, any other way, allow this cup to pass from me. There was no other way. See, Jesus said this in John chapter 14, verse 6. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so whenever you have surrendered your life to Jesus Christ as Lord, whenever you make that decision, then in that moment you're covered by the blood of Christ, you're forgiven of all your sins, and you can come boldly into the presence of God. But there's a fourth thing that you receive, but you don't get this one until you die. But we can have incredible confidence even in death. Look at it, you receive eternal life. I mean, the Bible says this. Look at how heaven's described in Revelation 23. Behold God's dwelling place. That's the presence of God is now with people. And he will live with them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. No longer any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have all passed away. Folks, that's what you receive in the presence of God. Jesus Christ died on the cross. Why? To show you the ugliness of your sin. To show you God's incredible love for you but also to provide open access that you can come boldly into God's very presence. Well, I hope this was helpful to you. If while listening, you realized you need to take the next step in your relationship with Jesus, we would love to help you with that. You can connect with us by clicking the link in the show notes to our website and then clicking the connect card button. In our weekend worship services, we are in a six-week sermon series called Jesus in the Midst. John chapter 13 and 14 record Jesus's final words to his disciples in the upper room. They're about to enter the darkest moment in history, and Jesus shares with them the essentials of what they need to walk through them. You know, the things they needed in the midst of their darkest hour are the same things we need in ours. We would love for you to join each week at one of our campuses or online. You will find service times by clicking the link in the show notes to our website. Lastly, there are so many ways for you to get involved and be a part of what God is doing at Silverdale. We really want you to feel welcome and a part, so please stay connected Be sure to like and follow us on all our different social media accounts. You'll find all the links in the show notes of this episode. And lastly, help us spread the word about this podcast. Take a moment to share this episode with your family and friends. Again, we appreciate you listening and hope you will join us again next time.